If I might have your attention, I'm going to invite you to make your way back to your seats and remain standing. As we turn in John's Gospel, chapter 20, you find that passage also printed in your bulletin, and it is Easter Sunday, uh, the most significant event in the history of the world. That's what we celebrate today, God's triumphant victory over the enemies of sin and death and the devil. If we're honest, though, I recognize that oftentimes we greet Easter Sunday with a shrug of indifference rather than with shouts of praise. I bet that's what many of you are wrestling with if, if the truth be told. And so how, how can our hearts be roused to the significance of this momentous truth? How can the resurrection make a difference? That's our question for us this morning. Let's give our attention to John's Gospel, chapter 20. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid Him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and his face cloths, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself, Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. And the disciples went back to their homes. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you, the God of the living and not the dead, would reign in our hearts today with faith and hope and love, that you would speak from your word and speak into our lives, that we would go forth different because you have met with us. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our risen Savior. Amen. You may be seated. may not be a significant day to most of us, but April 11th, that's just 10 days from now, is among the more significant events in the lives of the Jewish people on that day in 1945. That's 73 years ago. General Patton's Third Army continued his march across Nazi Germany and into the concentration camp that we later came to know as Buchenwald. Buchenwald. And there he delivered those survivors, and in only an hour's time, Rabbi Herschel Schachter, who was then just a young Jewish chaplain, He would alter the course of thousands of lives, and he himself would become famous. When they entered into the concentration camp, Rabbi Schachter immediately saw hundreds of dead bodies strewn throughout the camp, and the smell of death filled the air. But surprisingly, they were not greeted with shouts of the survivors' joy. Instead, the survivors remained huddled in their barracks, Upon entering, they saw the uniforms and expected only more violence from this, a new enemy. 
And so Schachter entered into one of those barracks, and he came face to face with a picture, with scenes that we only know from pictures that have been passed down to us. Hundreds of men piled in bunks from floor to ceiling. And these survivors were frightened. Seeing these new uniforms, they thought that this was only yet one more iteration of the horror and the injustice and the tragic evil that they had grown far too familiar with. The survivors wouldn't... It wouldn't come out of their barracks until Rabbi Schachter spoke to them in their own familiar Yiddish language. Shalom, alakayim, yidin irzin fry, peace be upon you, Jews. You are free. And so Rabbi Schachter went from barrack to barrack declaring the peace that had come upon them. And at first, a trickle of survivors gathered behind him, but soon it swelled to a stream of thousands as these survivors walked out of the darkness and into their newfound freedom and realized that the long, terrible, and horrific Holocaust was finally over. In preparation for Easter Sunday this morning, I was thinking, what image, what picture that can help us understand the significance, the magnitude of what Jesus rising from the grave means for this world? And surely this picture helps us. Surely this picture helps us understand how significant was that first, first day of the week 2,000 years ago. Because the disciples had seen what? They had seen the shameful death of their their Savior, their shepherd, the one that they had thought was the long-expected Messiah. And yet he hung on a cross. And consequently, all of the hope drained from their hearts. And they were thinking that the journey was over. Like those concentration camp survivors at Buchenwald, none of the earliest disciples were expecting liberation. None of the earliest disciples were expecting resurrection. None of those disciples thought that this day of the week, that first day of the week, was going to be the dawning of an entirely new world. But it was. It was that new day. And in their case, it wasn't merely a soldier's chaplain who was announcing the victory secured by another's effort, but it was the divine warrior himself. It was the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He was both the message and the messenger who had come back from the grave, who had come back from that mortal combat victorious, and he spoke peace. Peace be upon you. You are free. You are free. You see, it's because Jesus is the peacemaker that He speaks peace to us, and nothing but the resurrection can reassure us. Nothing but the resurrection could reassure us that this peace that Jesus speaks to us is really true. You see, that's the thing. 
Jesus is the peacemaker, and so He speaks peace, but only the resurrection can assure us that 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 Word is really true. And that's why it's critical for us to recognize, especially at Easter Sunday, that the resurrection really happened. It really happened. We we can never forget that there would be no peace with God, no freedom from death and sin, no victory over the evil in this world if it were not for the historic bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people think that we can unhinge the Christian faith from this miracle, that somehow it can be reduced to mere morals and sentiment and feeling, but that's wrong-headed. The Apostle Paul recognized that if Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we too are still in our sins. And in fact, we are of all men most to be pitied, he said. New Testament scholar Tom Wright put it well when he said that if Christianity is not rooted in things that actually happened in history in Palestine, well, we might as well be Buddhist, Marxist, or almost anything else. That if this didn't really happen, then we are indeed, he says, living in cloud cuckoo land. Friends, if the resurrection didn't happen, then please go home. We should all go home. Because Christianity, as a faith, has no sustaining significance. But that's what makes the resurrection accounts that we see in the Gospels, not just John, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well, so fascinating because we don't read there the disciples who were anticipating resurrection. We don't read about a Jewish leadership that was anticipating resurrection, but to a man, to a person, no one was expecting resurrection. No one was looking for this glorious miracle. Not the Jewish leadership that they were completely content with a dead Jesus, right? That's the one thing they wanted. That they had been scheming for years now to kill Jesus, and they had finally done it. They had finally gotten this Jesus into the tomb and into the grave. When the resurrection narratives began to spread, that they purported a stolen body theory, but if they wanted to refute the resurrection, all they would have had to do is one of two things, prove that the tomb was what? Filled or present the body. They could do neither. Two things were indisputable about that first day of the week, and that is that the tomb was empty, and they didn't have a body, and they couldn't find the body, and their best hope was to present this stolen body theory. We we don't know what's happened to the body, but when the narratives, the stories of eyewitness accounts, when they began to multiply, their theory became less and less plausible. But what's fascinating as well is, of course the Jewish leadership weren't looking for a resurrection, but But here's the thing, the disciples weren't either. Everything about the accounts indicates to us that the disciples weren't looking for a resurrection. First of all, the women, as they went to the tomb, were following the customs of the day. This is what you did when you went to mourn and grieve the loss of a loved one. You went to the tomb. 
You, you went to tend to the body. And we know that that's what John tells us Mary was doing. But from the other synoptics, we know that probably as many as four women were making that just before dawn, just before sunrise journey to the tomb. And we know that Mary wasn't looking for a resurrection because her first response upon seeing the opened tomb was not, Jesus has been raised from the dead. No. Her first thought is, what have they done? They've taken the body. And so she races back to tell Peter and John. They've taken the body of the Lord, and we do not know where they have taken Him, where they've laid Him. Mary wasn't looking for a resurrection. She was thinking that they had somehow stolen the body. And speaking of Mary and these women, why would the earliest disciples make them the first witnesses of such a momentous event, given that women held low social status in the ancient world, their testimony would have not even been admissible in a court of law. And yet all of the gospel accounts tell us that it was these women, these four women who first saw the empty tomb and the resurrected Christ, that that detail is so prominent means that it must have happened that way. And then how do we explain the sacrifice, the service and devotion of these disciples who weren't expecting resurrection if it didn't really happen. If Jesus was not raised, why would the disciples subject themselves to suffering, ridicule, and persecution and martyrdom? Why would they go to the grave to defend a lie? Why would the Apostle Paul become, uh, be- become this agent of the gospel who had formerly been a persecutor of the church, if he didn't believe in the historicity of the resurrection. I love what Chuck Colson says about this, um, this defense of the faith. He says, I know that the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. They proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They wouldn't have endured it if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in all of history, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. They couldn't lie for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years and die for it? Absolutely impossible. You see, it's the resurrection that explains the faith of those first disciples. The faith doesn't explain the resurrection. The resurrection explains their faith, their devotion, and the life and launch of Christianity throughout the world. It happened. It really happened. But what does it mean? What difference ought it to make in our lives? Well, I said earlier that it vindicates God's defeat over His enemies and our enemies, over sin and our guilt, over the curse of death, that death doesn't get the last word, over the devil and all of his dominions and dark forces at work in this world. That the victory happened. Not just the resurrection, but the victory that the resurrection announces. 
And can you imagine going back to our story about, uh, about uh, Rabbi Schachter entering into Buchenwald? Can you imagine if upon entering that concentration camp that they had announced a victory that had not occurred? Can you imagine how horrible would it have been for them to say, you're free. It is in fry. When they knew, when they knew that the victory was not secure, how horribly tragic, how terrible would that have been? And in the same way, and with infinitely more significant, the resurrection's historicity is so critical because it's the thing, it's the only thing that assures us that the victory God announces to us is really true. So that when God speaks peace to us, He's not lying. When God speaks peace to our hearts and the brokenness in this world, He really means it. You see, it's because Jesus is the peacemaker that He speaks peace to us. And that's what the resurrection promises. Peace. Peace. Peace with God because God speaks our name. John was the first disciple who got it right. Peter ran. John ran faster. Peter got there. He was a little older. Peter goes into the tomb. John's tentative waits outside. And then John musters the courage and walks in. And he saw, verse 8 tells us, and believed. He realized in that moment that life was never going to be the same, that his life was never going to be the same, that this world was never going to be the same. And interestingly, John doesn't talk about his story, but he takes us back to Mary's story. Mary Magdalene, this one that the disciples tell us, the Gospels tell us that Jesus had cast out seven demons from. And so she had become his disciple But as I said a moment ago, she wasn't looking for resurrection. Her tears prove it. Where's Jesus? She's talking with the angels who she doesn't realize are angelic beings. Where's Jesus? And then John tells us she's talking with Jesus. And she doesn't recognize him until he speaks her name. Mary. Mary. And when Jesus speaks her names, her eyes are opened and she sees the risen Lord and she awakens to a resurrection faith and she cries out, Rabboni, teacher. And she knew that her Savior had been risen from the dead because Jesus spoke her name. In those first hours after Rabbi Schachter had walked into Buchenwald and he was encountering all of these concentration camp survivors, he stumbled across a small boy whose eyes were filled with fear for not knowing who these soldiers were and what kind of army this was and stamped upon this young boy's shirt was prisoner. Prisoner one seven zero. Three zero. 
And Rabbi Schachter spoke a word to this young man that brought him back to life. He knew that this little boy was more than a number waiting to die. And he said, my young man, what's your name? What's your name? And the young boy replied, Lulek. Lulek, and that was the beginning, right, of his journey back into sanity, back into life, remembering that he was more than a number waiting for death, but had been given a name that he might live in this world. Friend, that's the beauty of the resurrection. Not only are you named, but the resurrection means your name will not be forgotten because the Savior has gone to death to get you and bring you back. That there's no amount of sin that you have committed, there's no amount of tragedy that you've experienced that will make God forget you. And friends, that's what we all struggle with. That's what we're so desperate for. Remember me. We're always saying that to somebody in our life. Remember me. And we need to hear the word from our Savior that He knows your name. My sheep hear my voice because He knows your name. And He speaks it into the sin, into the brokenness, into the tragedy. God speaks our name and reconciles us back to Him. Why? Because He also speaks a new beginning. How could Jesus draw near to Mary, this sinner, unless He had put away her sins? Unless he had atoned for every debt and paid it in full. It's because of the resurrection that the promise of forgiveness that comes in Jesus Christ is really true. This is the evangelistic hope that the disciples are charged to give as they go forth into the world in verse 23. Look what it says there. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. Why? The disciples are called to offer to the world forgiveness because Jesus has promised and given us and made provision for forgiveness for us. We can offer forgiveness to this world because He has offered forgiveness to His Father, having put away every sin. But I know it's possible for us to trivialize the magnitude of God's forgiving mercies, but we only do that when we have not thought deeply about ourselves. We only do that when we have denied the truth about who we really are. And all you have to do is sit with yourself for a little bit. Think about all the things that you've done. All the things that you've wished for that would have led to tragedy for other people's lives. Just think about yourself for a few moments and you will be undone. And you will know that there is a reason why you are separated from your God. And it's because of our sin. And the resurrection teaches us that there is one who has bridged that gulf. 
and put away that sin and atoned for that desperation so that we might be free. Carl Menninger, the famous late psychiatrist, he said that 75% of my patients could walk out tomorrow if they knew that their sins had been forgiven. So powerful is it to know that we are forgiven. Have you heard Jesus' word of forgiveness? That the penalty has fully been paid. I think the prophet Isaiah says it best, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Upon Jesus. That he might speak to us a new beginning because our sins have been forgiven. Jesus speaks peace when He speaks our name and He speaks a new beginning, but He also speaks a new world. A new world that's begun in and through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through the resurrection, all of life is being renewed. Now, now I know it's true. We don't experience or see the fullness of that renewal yet. We're still waiting for it. There is tragedy all around and there remains the struggle with sin within. But when Jesus Christ came forth from the tomb, He came forth as a glorious, resurrected embodiment of our humanity. Paul the Apostle refers to Him as the first fruits. He is what we will become in our glorified and resurrected state. He's the beginning of a future that is destined to come because He has already here. That's the beauty of the resurrection. That's why I love that Mary mistaking Jesus for the gardener may not be insignificant. If you remember that God, when He first formed this world, He made Adam and Eve and placed them in a garden to be gardeners, stewards. But they failed in their duty and wandered from the Lord and plunged all of humanity and this world into darkness and and to sin. And yet, here in the resurrection story, we have the holy gardener return. The new man to tend and steward a new and glorious creation. So he ensures that we too will be able to live in the beauty of a world that's being made new. And that's what Jesus promises us. In and through Jesus Christ, we can come out of the barracks of sin, of darkness, of the brokenness in this world. Because God is bringing us a world where there will be no more fear, no more racial prejudice, no more violence and corruption, no more sexual abuse and exploitation. It's coming a world of truth and beauty and justice. It's coming. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Or have the powers of cynicism corroded your heart? So that you don't believe that the resurrection is powerful enough to execute that promised future. A future that God will say, peace. Because we fit that world. That world fits us. 
and we fit each other in that new and glorious place that's coming because the resurrection is bringing it. The resurrection is bringing it. If you're wondering about that, I think the disciples were probably wondering those very same questions, the end of the first day. I love how John ends chapter 20. The disciples are huddled together in the upper room. The doors are locked. Surely they're asking themselves what what all of this means. Jesus is risen. And then, miraculously, Jesus enters and stands among them. And in that moment, He spoke to them those words that ultimately reveal the significance of the resurrection. Shalom alakayim. Peace be upon you. Peace be to you. We sometimes say the most significant thing we can do on Easter Sunday is believe the resurrection. But I would ask, maybe, I would say perhaps it's this. Have you heard? Have you heard the resurrection? Have you heard Him speak peace to your soul? By speaking your name. By speaking your forgiveness. Have you heard the promise of the new creation that He's bringing and are you living into that hope? Friends, this is the promise of the resurrection. Shalom. Alakayim. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You did not withhold Your Son, that You might bring peace to this world, but instead offered Him up for us and for us all to be atonement for sins, and Him rising forth from the grave. Have, and You have assured us that He has become our peace. May we live into that peace this day in faith and hope and love. Through the ministry and power of Your reigning Spirit, we pray. Amen.